Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Hello and welcome to another episode of Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Apologies for there not being an episode last week. Uh, There were various things that were out of our hands that meant we couldn't get an episode out last week. Uh, So sorry about that, but we are back this week with a new episode with Robin and guest host Beck Hill once more. And uh, Guy Vince is our guest this week, Royal Society Book Prize winner. Before we get onto that, a few little reminders uh, of things coming up. Our next uh, event will be at the British Science Festival with Footprint Theatre and the show Signals. Uh, come along to that in September. You can find all the dates and ticket details. Uh, tickets for that are free, actually. You just need to register, uh, like most things at the British Science Festival. So check out their website or cosmicshambles.com for that. We'll be at the Norwich Science Festival as well with signals, as well as a talk from Professor Lucy Green, talk from Professor Chris Lintot and Universe of Music with Chris and Steve Pretty. Robin is on tour throughout November with Chaos of Delight and he is taking She Makes War with him to a lot of those gigs. Find all the dates for those on Cosmic Shambles or robinince.com. Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People. Also on sale, has been for a while. Tickets still left for uh, all nights of those. The four in London, the two at the Lowry and Salford and the family matinee. Uh, some new guests announced this week. Combination of uh, some new faces to the Nine Lessons gang as well as some returning favourites. Uh a few people actually that haven't done uh, the shows for a few years but they are back this year to join us people like uh, Claudia Hammond and uh, Ariane Shireen will be with us and some other new names we've added recently uh, Dr Linda Cremonisi who you know from some Science Shambles podcasts Johnny and the Baptists Chris Stokes Andrea Seller they've all been added to the bill very recently So get your tickets for that and Robin and Brian's Compendium of Reason at the Hammersmith Apollo. And don't forget, see Shambles, May 17, 2020 at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, You'll also might have noticed on Twitter and Facebook, uh, we need your help. Uh, Obviously, buying tickets, that that would be a big help. And also with something we are doing in connection with that show, we want your pictures Uh, of anything sea-related. So pictures you've taken, it could be from dive trips or trips to the beach or piers, shells, fishes, fishes, fishing, fish, uh, as in the things in the ocean, not the uh, rock band or, uh, you know, internet scam system, the things with fins. Although having said that, not all fish have fins, do they? I mean, most do, probably the ones that you would have pictures of. Um, what are they called? The ones that have got like a big skull that don't have a hagfish. Hagfish, that's a fish that doesn't have fins. So if you have any pictures of uh, your standard fish or hagfish or any other, this has gone uh, on too long and poorly. Point is, send us sea pictures. Use the hashtag sea shambles on Twitter and send those to us to get involved. All will be revealed soon. 
And finally, thanks as always to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles. If you'd like to become one, get uh, extended episodes and all sorts of stuff on there. Uh, the show and what we do at Cosmic Shambles, honestly, it, it 100% would not be possible without your support. So thank you for that uh, and get involved. Now on to this week's episode. Here is Robin and Beck and Gaia. Hello, welcome. In fact, you've never done an intro, have you, Beck? No. Why don't you do the intro? Uh, um, hello, welcome to Book Shambles with Robin Ince and me, Beck Hill. Or you can say Beck and Robin's book shambles because, as we said, Josie Long's been very, That's true. very We're being busy. alphabetical. Hello. She's been doing podcasts with her husband, though, hasn't she? Oh, he's good enough Ugh, for her. That yeah. lovely man. Blinking Blech. lovely Johnny Donahoe. We're shaking uh, our fists for anyone listening. Oh, they can hear. Due, due, <laughs> due to ju- I've got just enough knuckle arthritis that it can be picked up by microphones. Do you know that screenshot of Grandpa Simpson on the newspaper saying, old man, yours at cloud, is it? That's That's you right now. Yep. I've been yelling at clouds yeah. since even before that cloud spotting guide came out. Uh, today we have with us Guy Vince, who wrote a book which won the Royal Society Book Prize. I'm not having a uh, wee, just what, to what clarify. Is, that's quite <laughs> right. We, we generally don't tell the audience really too much about moment. any of the water noises. <laughs> it allows them in a bathroom. <laughs> to embrace their peccadilloes or reject them at any one particular time. That's uh, me having a wee, just for anyone wondering. And uh, oh. the... <laughs> Uh, it's a good sound, I suppose, for adventure in the Anthropocene, isn't it? It's like a kind of, you know, because it, 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 there's a level of hope. There's a level of the, the access to clean water, etc. and that's part oh, of I what you're... Oh, I see. Your... I thought you meant the absolute relief of getting a bladder burden. Oh, no, I was thinking you were actually pouring water. Oh, I, I, I don't see. think it has... I mean, it does have a certain amount about composting, etc. but it doesn't necessarily deal that much with... Urination doesn't seem to play as much of a part in it. Would that be fair? In the Anthropocene, generally. Yeah. Yes, I don't think urination has played much of a role. And in, in your book, I mean, you don't have as much on that. You have a lot more on composting toilets. I tell you we- what, I had to go on a two and a half year journey just researching this book. And um, I became a very, very good, discreet outdoor whenever I had a possibility urinator. Well, that is oh. one of those things is because the moment you say that, I always see that scene in the piano, Jane Campion's The Piano, where, of course, these women in these enormous skirts yeah. and what must be done, of course, is that the other women surround them and then nothing can be seen anyway because the skirt itself mushrooms out. And then the trick, I suppose, is to to manage to get up with a jauntiness that means that the excrement won't end up on the hem of the skirt. Now, you're from Australia, so that's near New Zealand. Would that be true of current times? Yes. Good. Actually, <laughs> skirts, skirts play a big role. Skirts are very, very important in uh, in urination. Well, yes. I can imagine, well, yeah, yes. I was, the... I, that was my first question when you were saying that it's in public, well, outdoors urination, because that's always a problem. You can't do it when you've got jeans, otherwise you've got to completely de-trouser yourself. Although, always carry a very handy kind of scarf, pashmina, whatever, that you can just drape around the waist. Oh, right, I thought you meant to, to wipe or something. Oh, no, 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 no. It's, like, it's a oh. drip-dry situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's a horrible... Thing. How long have you been travelling? Because your pashmina's really beginning to smell. Mm. It has been a while, <laughs> and I wasn't well in Nepal. Um, will you start off... Now, there we go, there's there's the segue for it. So so this is where you, you, you start off on this. First of all, let's find out, because, as I said, this book won the Royal Society uh, Book Prize. It's a... Uh, uh, 
a tremendously both useful and important book, I think, in giving people uh, a, a, a vision of what is happening in uh, in the Anthropocene uh, and the fact that it is not a book of, of, of pessimism. It's, it's a book of, again, a line that always turned to of possibilism, as, as Hans uh, Rosling uh, says. So here are Said, possibilities. Sadly. Said, yeah. yes. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. um, so um, this book, Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey to the Heart of the Planet We Made. So I'm Gaia Vince, and I was, I was working in London uh, as a as a well as a news editor actually at the journal Nature, and I was getting a lot of um, my reporters coming back with these stories, um, uh, scientific papers basically saying, oh, um, in the future we may see a temperature rise or we may see um, uh, sea level rise or uh, there don't seem to be as many tigers as there once were that sort of thing, um, and I just thought you know there is a lot happening. And it's a systemic thing. This is a system-wide uh, thing. We were just mentioning um, Jim Lovelock earlier. with, and, and, of course, he came up with that systemic idea of, of uh, the planet as a living organism, this, this theory of Gaia. Um, and the Anthropocene is very much that as well. It's this, it's this systemic idea. It's, it's, it's not looking purely at biodiversity or, or, um, or uh, oceanography or... Um, uh, ecology or, or any of the other um, sort of narrow dis- disciplines, but it's recognising that all of these are very interconnected and there's something, there's some sort of uh, change in the air and we, we are the change makers. Humans are integral to that change. And of course, we're part of this system. You know, we evolved as as natural beings on this planet and we are now changing it. So, so I, I looked at that and I thought, you know, this is this is very interesting. This is something that's really quite big that's happening, a big change. And um, from my office in King's Cross in London, I'm really just getting a really not really a, a, a proper sense of it. I'm just getting these dribs and drabs of papers of scientific research papers coming in. And I'm not really getting the story which I want to see, which is how is it actually affecting people? Mm. And what the hell are they doing about it? And and what are we going to do about it? What does this mean for everybody for, for humanity as a as a sort of as a whole, rather than um, just people in certain areas you know yeah. so so that so I took I bought a one-way ticket to Kathmandu <laughs> rented my place out for six months um uh, to see if I could make it work uh because I just was making it work through um through articles I was writing radio programs I was making that sort of thing and just kept going and going and going until two and a half years on um my partner came with me for most of it he was just like I've had enough I want to go back have the same bed every night that's fair enough you know um and it's it's really a story of the most extraordinary time on our planet i think because it's the first time a sentient being is witnessing what is really a geological scale change Mm. you know these changes that have happened in the past not only have they not been caused by a sentient being but they they haven't there's been nobody to reflect on it and and really see what's happening well, right now we have all this data from the past we have this really 
unique way of looking at our planet from satellite imagery. From we can look at it from space, but we can also look at it from the minute, most minute scale. You know, we can look at actual chemical changes as they happen, and we can we can see the biological changes, the the new ecology that humans have made, all the domesticates. You know, which is most of the planet. You know, and and we can see the scale is really it's extraordinary. Four tenths of the world's planet's ice-free surface is used just to make our food you know we control something like two-thirds of the world's water fresh water um we know that the temperature's rising i mean right today while we're recording this it's some extraordinary 36 degrees or something um in london which is which is very unusual but but it's not unusual anymore because these are going to become regular temperatures and we have to adapt to that do you think it uh, i've talked with people recently and and there seems to be a feeling that no longer is the really the debate as it was that and I don't mean within science we know that's true but in terms of in popular culture actually that you know we've had a lot of people in the past promoted various different you know politicians and other people paid money by you know think tanks with with direct links to fossil fuels etc who've been given a lot of exposure and created this kind of idea of you know how how unlikely this really is and anyway don't worry about it and now do you think is it fair to say or not that there that's that's stopping now that really is like there's been enough changes that people are they might still be skeptical and they might still be wishing not to believe it, but actually the, the, the story is getting through? Well, um, when I left um, on this journey some time ago now, um, in the West, uh, most people, most people were um, believed, believed in the evidence, the scientific evidence about climate change. Whereas where I was travelling around and people were really witnessing these very extreme weather conditions, um, seeing coastal erosion daily, seeing these huge changes. Um, I would say pretty much everyone I met was, you know, would, would cite climate change. They would, they would just bring it up. Um, there was no doubt at all. And by the time the book came out and over the last, um, over the next few years, I think that was probably the same here as well. I think socially it was acceptable. I mean, I'm I'm in a bit of a bubble, you know, the people that I mix with, the people I talk to, generally they are very environmentally um, aware and they, 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 they do see the change and they, they don't doubt climate change. But I think what's happened in the last three years um, makes me wonder again because things that I thought we'd left behind have started to res- started a, a resurgence. Yeah, Australia is going rubbish so again. Australia, so I'm half Australian as well. Right. So I see that um, the US, Boris, um, um, the US. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just called him. Well, do you yeah. know what? They're you know? they're very much from the same boys from Brazil gene pool. Yeah. 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 We have Bolsonaro in Brazil. So so I think there is now this this whole populism thing. This this this. This anti-science, this um, this doubt of expert, this um, this trend at the moment—it's it, frightening. I think it's really frightening because all sorts of things that I hoped we'd turned a corner on, whether it's um, women's rights, whether it's um, minority rights, whether it's um, environmental rights—all these things which I gave me hope—and they still, you know, they're still strongly upheld 
um, in places like the European Union. But look what we're doing. We're mm. we're about to leave it. I've... I feel like it's that bit in a horror movie where you've you've they've killed the the big bad, the scary, fantastic. I've just seen a guy's necklace. And I've got to say, I agree. Um, but, you know, when you see a, a horror film and then there's like the, the the scary monster and then they kill it and then they go, ah, and then it goes, ah, the root, that, that's so what that was an like. even bigger shark. That was only yeah. a baby giant shark. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a real lesson about not being complacent. And, and I also think we're moving in a different, we're moving in a very different world now because um, we don't get our information from from um, you know the 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 experts that then it trickles down and it's um, it's it, it's delivered to us in a in a very different way now you know through the internet and there's a lovely line in a, in a postal service song where they say uh, something about uh, the the world's getting warmer and people thought they were just being rewarded for treating others how they want to be treated, obeying stop signs and curing diseases. And I just, I love that idea of just, well, I don't love that idea, but that the, the fact that there's people out there going, oh, it's nice and warm this summer, isn't it? That's lovely. Oh, the winters aren't as cold. That's good, isn't it? And just thinking that it was something that they've earned. So what do you think in terms of, uh, because I think what's great about your book is stories are so important it doesn't matter how many graphs you show people graphs don't stick we know that and anecdote is vital that's why mm. I'm sure you, you know about cape farewell who we talked about on this before who cape farewell this uh group i don't know how much how active they are at the moment but but for they, they would, yeah, would I know send david out... um what's he called david the guy that runs cape farewell because yeah there's a few the, the last time that i they, they he lives on a houseboat in chelsea so that if you want, if you go and pass houseboats on Chelsea, say, are you David? David? And you'll be able to find out more yell. about... Can you take your boat somewhere that's way. being affected by climate change? Because that's what's, <laughs> what they do is they, they, they take people, uh, artists and scientists, to areas which are having uh, have had um, a, a notable effects from climate change. And then the scientists basically explain to the artists what's been going on. And then the artists react to it by creating work. And then you have this... Uh, it's David Buckland, by the way, has come David up on the screen. Buckland. Yes, of course. The, um, and then <laughs> yeah. the, the artists create work. And then you have this lovely thing where people go to events. I, I did one at the uh, Edinburgh uh, Botanic Garden where people go around and they see all oh, this wonderful work or songs. They have people doing songs about that. And then the scientist says, oh, let me explain a little bit about what you've just seen with this particular sculpture and what it means about this particular creature and how it's changing. And that is, I mean, the trouble is, yeah, that, that's... It's it's a great adventure, and you. But how do how do you get that across to lots of different people? How do you get the stories out there when also very often, the news media is not that interested in anything beyond you know twenty four hour news cycle of a brief disaster and then we move on. Yeah, I mean it's it's difficult. I think um, I think a lot of artists, playwrights, poets um, ha- have embraced this idea of the anthropocene. I think that's. Um, that's one of the strengths of having a word to describe it is that it has kind of escaped that purely geological term and it has been embraced um, uh, in, in, in different spheres. And so people are finding their own way to understand it and also to, to, to emote, I guess, because this is a big change. And, and through that, I think people find a different way of um, interrogating it and coming across it. So, so um, yeah, t- talking about Cape Farewell, I remember a really at the um, museum in Greenwich, the National Maritime Museum, there was, a, there was this fantastic art exhibition that I think was to do with um, 
David Buckland's group, I think it was. Um, and it was it was an exploration of uh, glaciers melting, and it was very moving. It was it was dark, and it was done through light, and there were these kind of perspex white boxes. Um, I mean, that's that's what's so great about humans, right? We can we can um, interact with these ideas in so many different ways, and in some of them, uh, some of the ways that we we uh, some of the ways we interrogate. These big, big ideas are, are ways that then um, allow others to engage and to realise, but also they pop up solutions because we're not going to find solutions to these problems in, in a lab in Yale or Oxford. You know, we might find some solutions there. But we will find them everywhere, you know, because they're not just technological, they're not just social, they're not just political. They're about, um, they're about the way that humanity interacts with the planet, and humanity isn't one individual, of course. So, um, mm. you know, these are these are systems. It's, it's such a it's such a um, it's such a big idea. I think. Who? What? That's just. Why does the story? start in Kathmandu can you tell people why to yeah. get there why Kathmandu so um so originally Kathmandu is such a great place have you been to Kathmandu no no it's such a great place um it's it's one of those so it's obviously it's very high up um it's the capital of Nepal which is a pretty much defunct state for the last 40 years um and yet people obviously have to get on with their lives this is what we'll find out post Brexit. How to, how we continue in a defunct state. Um, anyway, sorry, I probably interrupted you in a previous podcast, and I'm going to interrupt you again. Be sure to check out everything else going on at CosmicShambles.com. We've got other podcasts such as Science Shambles, where myself and Helen Chersky chat to all sorts of brilliant scientists about their current work, and Brain Yapping with Dean Burnett and Rachel England tackling questions about the brain. Exclusive blogs from top science writers like John Butterworth, Susie Gage, Dean Burnett, Ginny Smith and others. Videos, documentaries and lots of live events. The Cosmic Shambles Network is the place for people who are curious about the universe and everything it contains and things that might also, it doesn't contain, but we're just kind of mucking about with those ideas. You know, all of that stuff. You know, what we are doing now is making the future for the next generation. So, you know... There is a problem, I think, with climate change and with uh, the environmental destruction that we have in that it's, it is a moral issue. We are, we are the rich world and the people most affected by this are the poorest. So climate change will affect all of us. But um, for us, it will mostly affect our pockets. Mm. For poorer people, it will affect their lives. Right? That's a, obviously a huge difference. But there is also the moral, um, the moral case that we are the ones that caused this. The Industrial Revolution started in the northern towns in the Midlands of Britain. We caused this. We've made climate change. But we, we didn't make it, right? You and I did not make climate change. Nobody made it intentionally. Nobody sat mm. there and thought, I'm going to yeah. burn this and make everybody's life really shit. Um, you know, huge, violent hurricanes, typhoons, cyclones, um, deserts, forest fires, um, you know, thousands suffering drought, all that sort of thing. Nobody did that. Everybody, you know, works incrementally to try and solve a problem, make things better. No one's trying deliberately 
um, to make things worse. And we didn't make the climate change. We didn't make this really hot day today. That was made by people we don't know, ancestors, 150 Mm. years ago. They're not us. What we are doing now is making the temperatures in, you know, 40 years, whatever. We're, We're adding to the carbon. So we have the choice now about the world as it will be. But it's not our fault, the world now. So I think if we can almost shrug off that 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 um, that burden and and instead look a little bit more pragmatically and think, what can we do? You know, how can we solve this? How are people already solving it? Because of course they are. You know, they're mm-hmm. sitting on the edge of um, a river that's uh, you know completely flooded and destroyed their houses. They're not sitting there waiting for somebody to come and solve the problem. They're having to solve all these problems themselves. And some of these solutions. Um, can can then be extrapolated, taken and, and spread out and might solve other people's problems. But they're not being shared. I don't hear about these problems. I don't hear about these solutions, which is why, which is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. But also um, some of them, they're very local. These are very local solutions and they're not going to work anywhere else. But, but maybe they give us um, some hope because one thing that all of these places that were solving the problems had in common, pretty much, was this great sort of social effort, this collaboration, this this idea that that you don't solve a problem on your own, you solve it with other people and for other people. And I think, um, I think, I think we can we can lose that idea now because we're living we're living in a in a society where where there are so many institutions that that. Um, have, have kept us since since we're, we're very lucky but they're not always fit for purpose and they're certainly not now we're moving into the anthropocene you know mm. we, we live in a victorian even older you know so a lot of our institutions almost go back to roman times um and we need to update them they were made for a world where there was a, a small global population where there were infinite resources where you could throw something away and never see it again where the climate was relatively stable you could um, assume that the rains would come and the harvests would come at a certain time that's all changed you know we now live in a world with a huge population seven and a half billion people we have limited resources um, we have a very unstable and unreliable climate now which and global warming. And we know that when we fish our shrimp out of the sea and we eat them, we're eating them with the plastic that we mm. discarded. It's a closed loop. It's one planet. So um, we're now aware of that. You know, we've shrunk the horizons to to within our own influence. It's not... It's not this incredibly large world, and I think I think the, one of the beginnings of that was um, uh, I was thinking, you know, about fifty years ago, just over fifty years ago, that Earthrise image. Mm. It was the first time we really saw our planet from from an external perspective. We could see it complete, sort of hanging in the sky, this one living blue with clouds. You know, this was our home, and I think that perspective maybe helps us realize that actually you know these are all connected yeah you know the oceans create the atmosphere the circulations that go around the ecology you know when the amazon breathes and um it 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 sends the rain um to another part of the globe you know the winds from the sahara deposit to fertilize the amazon you know it's 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 a global global system 
Um, and, you know, but, but we are the influencers, so we can decide what our good Anthropocene could be, you know. What was, I mean, it's interesting when you, you talk there about the Earthrise image, because I, I know did a, an Infinite Monkey show with uh, Rusty Schweikart and, and Rusty from Apollo 9. You know, he, he, he's not the only one to consider, you know, with, within NASA that that was more important, that image, than human beings landing on the moon and standing on the moon, that, to, to give it that kind of context, to give our planet that, that, that context. And it's, um, I, I wondered whether, I mean, in fact, we were trying to work out if there's another image that could now somehow kick in as that kicked in the environmental movement. Then you had things like the whole earth catalog and all of those things that Stuart Brown was doing. And, uh, I made a program about it actually as well with Stuart Brand and, um, um, talking about that and talking about what that really meant that, um, and I had Ed Batinsky, do you know? Ed? No. So he's a Canadian, um, he's a Canadian photographer and filmmaker and he does these, incredible massive but very detailed pictures of how we are influencing the earth so um you might see the nigerian the delta the niger delta and you see the oil slicks um you've probably seen some of his pictures mm. and not yeah. realized so it would be an enormous um an enormous tar sands um panorama or um, he's he's done this incredible mine. Hang on, where did you say? Is he Canadian? Did you say? Yeah. Yeah, I saw some of his stuff at the uh, um, the museum in, in in Toronto, the Great Big Art Gallery. There, they had an so exhibition. So they have an about, exhibition. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, did they're some incredible. They look three D, and they're not three D. They're absolutely remarkable. That, that you know that photo where you just you go, oh, I'm sure I can put my hand into that. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, they are. Yeah, brilliant. They're really incredible, and I think for me, that's another way of that's another way of looking at our impact on the earth. Well, I saw I saw one the other day uh, that was taken in 2017 by uh, forgot the name of one of the um, telescopes um, that's out on a satellite, and um, uh, it was 2017. But it's got the Earth and the Moon in the same shot. It's composite, but it, you know the Earth and the Moon in the same shot. And it's the first time I've felt really emotional about looking at a photo. Like the mo like I just I had to take a moment just because I went. Oh, like, first of all, they look so tiny and you, the moon is so small and so far away. But also just to see them both there looking so small, like the earth rise is a beautiful one. But, you know, you probably have the same. You grow up with that being the image you see as a kid. So for you, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's what the earth looks like. But it was the first time I'd seen the the scale. And and went oh that's really small. I think We're it's so I small. think it's the scale and the perspective. Mm. I think they're both really really important to to see either the Earth small enough that you could put it in your hand, mm. or the scale of our destruction so yeah. big, yeah. or you know. And I hate I actually hate using the word destruction and 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 all the negative connotations with with our impact on the planet because. Because, yes, I mean, we, we've changed. We, we have transformed the planet in so many different ways. And in some of them, we've made it much worse for people and um, the other parts of nature that we share mm. this planet with. But in a lot of ways, we've made it much better. You know, we've really, um, we've transformed it. I mean, I think cities are an absolute monument to what humans can do. They are just incredible. Um, no other animal no other no other being could could create something 
like that, that sort of scale of organisation and, and health giving and intellectual giving, sort of uh, structure from, from the very bones of our planet, from rock. You know? Well, is, is that where one of the biggest problems comes then, that we view that as what an incredible thing we're doing? You know, Jacob Ronofsky talked about that in the beginning of The Ascent of Man, where you see you know, the difference between human beings and all the other species. The other species uh, have to live within their environment. We are builders of our environment. Now, it does it, is there a, unless we are led in the, in the correct way and unless the mouthpieces you know, that, that, that magnify opinion, if, if they're misleading, then actually the idea of not living within your environment but shaping your environment may well be a destructive and impossible thing. Well, I think we've always done that, right? That's part of what it is to be a human. And it's such such a short period of time. So you have this very short period of a species existing. You have the speed in which it then gets to the point of the Anthropocene, of of changing the very climate that, you know, as as it appears to be Earth is, you know, is is an unusual planet in having the idea of of not merely life, but, you know, the idea of complex life. There are many people who say, do you know what Matthew Cobb talks about? He said, you know, there may be uh, life in uh, other parts of, of the Milky Way, but it's it's probably just going to be somewhere between kind of goo and you know the best very small worms. You know that might be what it is. Here is this comment that that's so the challenge. Not that then, we should be speciesist because yeah. you know maybe that's... okay. Maybe, co- yeah, the yeah. Uh, um, but that might survive. For, <laughs> that might survive for billions and billions of years. Yeah. You know that, that well, that's Homo that. erectus right survived for. Um, more than a million years. We've been around for a tiny fraction of that. And most of our cousins... This is, this is really treading on um, the subject of my next book, actually, which is, which is almost a prequel. It's how did we get to the Anthropocene? How did a smart ape um, become a planet-dominating force? Um, and I look at that um, in this... But what, but what I, what I, what I wanted to say, I think, is so, so we do, we do change our environment. I don't think that in itself is bad. I'm also very human centric. I think I'm more interested in 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 our um, our joys and and our our health and and our meaningful lives. You know, I think that's more important than um, than uh, whether an environment is, you know full of uh, one indigenous species or another. You know, I think that's more important. but the but the problem is, with all of this, is that we absolutely depend on um, ecosystems to survive. Mm. That's what that's what made us. So, um, if we change them too far, we risk our own survival, and we risk our own. You know, we, we so far we've become. You know, we we live longer lives than ever before. We live better than ever before. You know, uh, the, the last the last century has seen child mortality rates plummet. You're talking about Hans Roslin. Well, just like the statistics of the last century, we are the most extraordinarily successful um, species. You know, our population's gone straight up. There's this great acceleration in human activity that's taken place. And it's all been about... great. But, but, but we're right at this cusp of it all going completely tits up because mm. because the environments that that allowed this to happen are now at, on a complete knife edge a lot of them see that's why even the so, idea of calling it success i think is an interesting thing because i remember george carlin used to have a routine where he said you know when they would say save save the planet and he was like bullshit we're not saving the planet we're saving ourselves the planet's going to remain and animals will, will you know all of these things are going to yeah. you know what they, there's there's still going to be all manner of ecosystems where all manner of creatures exist we're talking about ourselves and and 
I just, yeah, I find it, I mean, I, I just find it interesting where, because to me, one of the biggest problems, and I might be wrong about that, I very probably am wrong about this, which is one of the most, when you get a, a creature that is on this scale and you give such a few people control over information, so in terms of the main broadcast of information. So for most people, and there's no reason that, that you know that they, they shouldn't be, they, they, they will turn on whatever the different systems are that they have for getting communication, and then we have a certain number of people, very, very few people who control the means of the dissemination of information. If you're really interested in a subject, yes, you may well read further into it, and you may do research, but I think people will take, very often as read, the thing that they see in their newspaper, the thing that they see on the, the TV debate well, show, and all of those things. Well, this is what the internet is shaking up. Yeah, and it's that seems to be one up. of the... And it's and so it's done it in some really positive ways and some really negative ways. So so I think, for example, um, if you look at Wikipedia, that's just mm. a phenomenal um, success. You know, it's really really interesting. It's just um, f- made by volunteers. We have all this information. When I think when I was a kid, we had the Encyclopedia Britannica, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that was basically the source of information if I wanted to look something up. Um, now. We're all we've all got these phones, and and this is this is global, most enormous numbers of people. I think it's more than sixty percent of the population is now um, connected to the internet, which is incredible. Um, but yeah, we do have this incredible inequality, and it's inequality um, in terms of in terms of money and in terms of power, uh, and I think that's destabilizing, rightly. But I don't know where it's going to where it's going to lead us. It's uh, information, though. That's that, that bit of well, once you control this. I think in David Robert Grimes' new book, which hasn't come out yet, called The Irrational Ape, he was the one who, who did that uh, fantastic paper about uh, when a lot of people, you know, oh, we never land on the moon. He, he did this great paper about how long a secret can be kept by a certain number of people, We're all of that kind of thing. And he, But in The Irrational Ape, there's a quote, which I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get quite right, but people can look this up on, on Wikipedia, which is uh, where Edward O. Wilson, I think, said something about the fact that we, we uh, a prehistoric minds with medieval political structure but with uh, a, a futuristic technological wizardry that you, you're combining all of these things and and that third part of it is if you've if you've still got medieval political structures and you've still got a kind of uh, stone age brain that's that mix is not working well that that mix of how we receive information why we decide what we want to believe why we are drawn towards tribalism and all of those things and why we are drawn towards certainty those things with the way that information is is currently disseminated, that's that becomes a huge problem if those people who control the dissemination of information, their prime target is to make sure that they remain within the one percent or the point not not one percent of the wealthiest. Which is, um, and I'm not saying this to shoehorn anything, but it's the reason I've been so quiet this episode is because I've uh, basically just gone into listener mode because this is fascinating stuff. But the the show, and I think by the time this goes out, I won't be a spoiler. But the in the show that um, I talk uh, that I'm taking up to Edinburgh, to, the theories I went to the future, I came back first ten to fifteen minutes, very lighthearted, very improvisy, very my normal style of stand up. It then takes a very dark turn and ends up being uh, a conversation well basically I interrupt my own show from the future to tell me to quit comedy um, uh, because 
uh, in the future, the 99% are being killed off by the 1% because they've got automation in place and uh, they don't need the 99% anymore and uh, I need to quit comedy and start an evil weaponized drone company to survive. And it all talks about that being like the 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 um, lifeboat on, on the Titanic type analogy. So the idea that we, we can't stop it, it's already happening, so might as well get on the lifeboat. But... Um, uh, that's my biggest fear is the whole is where it comes down when it comes to power. But of course, the the twist in this one is that the um, if you do kill off ninety nine percent of the people, then you end up with one percent of the carbon footprint. So, which is the moment in the show where the audience goes, "Oh gosh, oh that I guess that is technically an answer, but I don't like it." That's the rules theory of justice thing. I mean, it's a lovely yeah. answer, but what if I'm in the ninety nine and not the one? Oh, yeah. hang on a minute, it changes once the and also are what society are you creating if it's based on the, then it comes back to what you were saying, Gaia, about the um, what are you building it on? On, on the the systems that you've had in, in history that have brought you to this point. We're just going to keep repeat, repeating the same mistakes if we're not learning from them. Um, I just, yeah, the, it just it is terrifying. Uh, but what I want to get back to is, is in your book is that obviously a, a large part about that was the yearning for that hope to, to try and find out what's what's happening were there any uh are there any is there anything you found since writing that book that you think i'd oh i'd need to put this out there as well because it's helping it's giving you something to sort of the the optimism that you said is so hard to find yeah. sometimes so i'm i'm since writing the book i feel that um some really extraordinary things have happened is that should I stop for that noise? Or? No, we'll just say there's a noise, and then people, audience, will be aware that something strange has happened. Oh, it's stopped. <laughs> you messed up. The noise has ended. So, so what? I couldn't have predicted. Well, I didn't predict. Maybe I could have predicted. I didn't predict just how quickly the price of um, solar would go down. I mean, it was going down, but it's gone massively down. You know, renewables are have taken over. I think everybody agrees now that that's our future in terms of energy policy. Also, this this up, massive upswelling that started really, um, I think it really it really kicked in this just this year with Extinction Rebellion and mm. Greta Thunberg and these these sort of young, really they they give me so much hope. These people that that just have had enough of have had enough of the inaction and the slow slow process that's going on. Um, and so I think that sort of public support, um, politically active support, is is um, gives me hope. I think I think it's it's a really difficult time because politically, you know, I was a lot more optimistic, and and even the word optimism has has been hijacked by Boris Johnson, who uses it. You know, we need to we need to believe in Brexit, or we need to we need to have a more optimistic politics, and and that kind of bullshit is not what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, none of your chapters actually go. And in Kathmandu, a policy of optimism was brought in, and before yeah. you knew it, the cars were no longer leaving fumes. Yeah, that that's you're right. The the, the hijacking of language is a, a. It's a real problem, and it's and. Um, yeah, the way language is being used, and this, this for the for the last for the last few years, the last two years, I think that I have gone from being much more optimistic to less optimistic, and that's because for us to make changes on a global scale, 
just as for on a very small local or regional scale, collaboration is really important. And the only way that I see Britain and, and really the world moving quickly towards a low carbon future where we protect our oceans, where we protect human rights and um, uh, minority rights and so on, and they are all interconnected. You know, they are so interconnected. You can't have an ecologically positive future if you're trashing human rights at the same time because they're incompatible. Mm. People live as part of their environment and and um, they are the caretakers of their environment and they need to be part of the solution as well. So I feel that as if we withdraw from this European Union project which is forging ahead with more regulation, with with more innovation, with with really um, what I would call progress, ecological and environmental progress. If we pull out of that, I think that our future environmentally is we we just won't have the money, we won't have the um, we, we won't have the political and social support for it. I mean, you know, we have people going to food banks in this incredibly rich country. I really don't think that we're going to be investing in um, in clean energy technologies. That's that's very far away from. Anyway, sorry to bring it well, back to bloody Brexit. What we'll probably again. do Just is we'll, the we'll, there was a little bit about about a minute and a half ago. <laughs> it ended on that upbeat moment where Simple Mind starts playing and we all end up in freeze frame. Yeah. So we'll probably stop it there. No, but, uh, but I do. But I but I will say that I do. I do think that um, that we have the capacity and um, and the intention and the will. Nobody wants to live in a dirty, mm. filthy, degraded environment. We don't want that. So we we do all we do have this sort of united, aligned vision of um, a better world. And I think that we are trying to do that. And I mm. and I and I think we will do it. It's just will we do it in time for my children? <laughs> <laughs> Freeze frame, so. don't you forget about me. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Go. We've run out of time, which is why I was yeah, uh, slightly sorry, the... Uh, we did, I think that's the least number of books we've ever talked about on Book Shambles, but we did talk about a lot of very interesting things. We certainly told some... To, so I highly recommend this book, Events in the Anthropocene. Uh, there's a... Uh, Go will be back on Science Shambles quite soon to talk about uh, her new book. Uh, Beck Hill will either... Well, hopefully you've been to Edinburgh because you've given away so much. No, show. No. No, uh, there's still a lot of... Surprises in there. There's enough. Oh yeah, she only gave me one of the surprises. You've got to stay to see what the happy ending is. It's a multiple jack in the box, isn't it? It really is. Just like that funeral you have planned as well. Uh, That's a reference (laughs) to something that you have to. If you if you listen to all shows, that is a a a segue which goes back about five episodes. Um, And uh, anyway, we I will mention Cosmic Shambles that we are doing live shows at uh, Christmas in both Salford and also in London, and we're also doing Sea Shambles next year. The follow up to uh, space shambles that we did last year with Chris Hadfield and Rusty Schweikart. We're doing sea shambles. We've got a lot of guests booked. We've only so far announced that Steve Backshaw, Helen Chersky, and myself will be doing it. So find out more about that. I'm on tour throughout autumn. Thank you very much for listening. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Remember, uh, subscribe, review, rate, uh, on Apple Podcasts uh, especially and wherever you listen to the show. That really helps us out. Check out the online shop. Check out our upcoming events. Check out our Patreon. We will be back next week with another new episode. Until then, bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.
Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. 